take a seat. My name is Neely. I'm one of the pastors here at Overlake. And today we're going to wrap up our series on the book of Galatians. Today we're looking at the final chapter, this final portion of Paul's writing. And I think I've heard a lot of positive. We've all really kind of enjoyed taking some time and just really diving deeper into this one letter, this one book of the Bible. And I'm excited. I think what I believe we'll discover today is that Paul was trying to help the church for sure grab a deeper and truer understanding of what grace is and how it impacts our relationship with him. But I think what he also is going to do is drive home this idea that our understanding of grace also impacts our relationship with each other. In fact, I might argue that today that this is, chapter 6, is the most important chapter of Galatians. And that's why when we were sitting around a table going like, who should talk about this? You know, we were like, well, you know, Mike is good, but you know who could really bring it home is the student ministries pastor. That's what they said. So that's why I'm here today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jokes aside, jokes, it's all jokes. But I do believe today that we're going to unpack some really powerful truths about this idea of grace and the, what we're going to call the rhythms of grace. And so I want to dive right in. The first fill-in in your handout is right there. It says this, grace. It defines our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So what I want to do really quickly is review the last five weeks. I'm going to do it quick because we already kind of spent time each week. But I want to look at it in the light of others and how it impacts others. So in chapter 1, what we see, the whole point of Paul writing this letter to the, to the church is that they have been deceived by other people, by, by other teachers. And these teachers seem to have a poor view of grace. And because they have a poor view of grace, they're teaching, they're leading, they're treating other people differently. And, and that's why this whole letter was written, because of people impacting other people based on their view of grace. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, we see, we see a little bit of Paul's own personal journey. And what we see in Paul's journey is that there are people who showed him grace, who saw his story, knew everything about him, but still, still said, Paul, you are called and sent out. And so their view of grace impacted him. We also see Paul have conflict with another person about grace. And so again, we see relationships. In chapters three and four, we see this idea, this theme over and over about us being adopted into God's family and, and the, the good news that we have a father who welcomes us into his family. But what we have to remember is when you get a father, you also get a family, that there is a connection to other people. And so, again, there's this relationship theme. And then chapter 5, Mike unpacked this a lot last week about this idea of our newfound freedom. It, it, it impacts how we live. And Chapter 5, verse 13, it says that this way, use this freedom to what? To serve one another in love. So again, it's all relationships. Over and over, Paul's saying, look at how we understand God's grace because of others and how we understand others because of God's grace. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says the church exists primarily for two closely correlated purposes, to worship God and to work for his kingdom in the world. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two, to encourage one another, to build one another up in faith, to pray with and for one another, to learn from one another, to teach one another, and to set one another examples to follow, challenges to take up, and urgent tasks to perform. This is all part of what is known loosely as fellowship. 
And what's right is a reminding us here is that following Jesus, that our faith, it needs other people. In order to accomplish worshiping God, in order to accomplish God's work, we need each other. So why don't you write on your handout somewhere, write the word one another. One another. Because I want you to keep coming back to this reality that Paul is telling us, he's showing us how much we need each other. That in order for us to understand the last five chapters of grace and what it means, we need each other. So Paul ends his letter with some final instructions. He explains grace and how it changes our connection to the Father, but then he goes in and says, this is now how we interact with each other. So let's read Galatians 1 through 5, 6, 1 through 5, and see what he says. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptations yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You're not that important. At which point I would just like to thank Paul for that nice reminder every day. Um, look in the mirror. You're not that important. It's a good reminder. But he goes on in verse 4. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. So before we unpack this rhythms of grace, I do want to just point out what, what Paul sets up here. He says, brothers and sisters if another believer. So these are instructions for the family. These are instructions for us and how we experience grace together. This is, these are not instructions for how we operate or treat people outside of our family. It's family talk. Basically, we're gathering everybody in the living room and we're going to have a family chat. That's what's happening. So I want you to know if it's your first time, I'm, I'm so glad you're here, but our goal at Overlake is to be a family to feel like a family, to feel connected. And we work really hard to make this big place feel small, feel like you know people, that you're connected to people through groups, through relationships. And so today really is a talk about what kind of family do we want to be at Overlake. So Paul's describing a church family that's close. They know each other. He's painting this picture of human flourishing that is not about independence. It's not about self-sustainability. It's actually about community, about communal living, about togetherness, connectedness. And what Paul's doing is he's pointing us back to this reality that we see in Genesis where it says, you are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And God, in his very image, is three distinct persons in one God. He is a communal God. And he's saying, look, as my adopted children, as my followers, as those who are made in my image, you too need community. You need others. And so Paul isn't describing, it's, let's be careful, Paul isn't describing a life that intersects each other occasionally, an hour or so. He's talking about this living together in such a way that we are known by each other that we, we exist only in togetherness. So how do you create that? How do you create togetherness, connectedness? And that's why we call it the rhythms of grace. Because as the definition of rhythm is, it says this, is it's a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. See, what we're talking about today is not a behavior that you do once. It's not something you do and you're like, oh, check, I now live in community. 
No, it's repeated. It's over and over. It's a pattern. It's done consistently, a movement that you almost just sway to it because it's so natural and normal. So that's what we're talking about. So to get that community, the togetherness, you need to live in the rhythm of grace. So let's look at the rhythm of grace. The first one is this. Grace leads us to have gentleness and humility with others. I grew up, um, and I had a best friend. Her name was Kimberly. We'd been friends since elementary school, but we really became like BFFs in high school. We did everything together. We like picked out matching outfits. We went on mission trips together. We just love. We spent so much time together, and we went on a mission trip to Mexico together. And we were there, and you know something. Two things happen with those kind of friendships. One, when you're really that comfortable with somebody, you like say everything to them and you're not afraid and sometimes that backfires. And also we were on a mission trip so we were all tired and kind of, I had like sunburn because that's the only thing that happens to my body when I get in the sun, like it just burns, that's it. Um, And so I was kind of grouchy, she was kind of grouchy and she was doing something that was bothering me and we were in front of everybody, the whole group. And I remember I walked up to her and I was like, Kimberly, like you cannot do that anymore. It's not appropriate and I'm like just, and I think I even said your Spanish is really bad. I don't know where that fit in, but it felt like I wanted to really, like, get her, you know? To which point she just reaches up from where she's at and just smacks me across the face. And I'm like, oh, wow, hi, everybody. Like, that's embarrassing. I just got smacked by my best friend on a mission trip. I, like, start crying because I'm a teenage girl and that's what we do, you know, like, I just was like, I got to get out of here. It was so uncomfortable, but what you did not see was neither gentleness or humility in that situation. Luckily, things have worked out for Kimberly and I. We, We worked through that rough patch, and, you know, she ended up being the maid of honor in my wedding, and I was the maid of honor in her wedding, and we still share life together. But that is a little bit of the problem of how we handle relationships. In fact, Gandhi said this. You might have heard this quote. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think here's the deal. I think the world has watched us handle sin. They've watched us handle sin in the church in one or two ways. One, we've been totally silent about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, so we just push it under the rug. We don't talk about sin. The other extreme is that we yell and we scream and we make signs. You know, like we don't, we're, we live in these two extremes when it comes to how we talk about sin. But Paul is saying, look, you've got to handle it. You've got to handle it, but you've got to handle it with gentleness and humility. You've got to handle it in a way that has one goal in mind. What's the goal, Paul says? To get them on the right path. To get our brothers and sisters on the right path. And gentleness is not weakness. It's the ability to do what is right but without force. To guide another person without using violent action. Look to Jesus. His teaching, his life, he is showing us over and over what gentleness looks like. He calls us to this radical new way of living. In fact, I just think about this statement he says where he says, when you have conflict and someone slaps you, what do you do? He says, turn the other cheek. That's, that's, not, that's not weakness, that's strength, that's gentleness. To diffuse violence and anger and conflict with peace. I imagine that this looks more like us saying, my friend, you're struggling, and it's me putting my arm around you and saying, come on, let's get back on the right path. That's what gentleness looks like. But it's, Paul also says you've got to do it with humility. 
And you know why you should be humble? You know why you should be careful? It's because you might need someone eventually, sooner, maybe rather than later, to put their arm around you and say, come on, the, the, gentle, the path is right here. Let me gently lead you to the path. And nothing keeps us more humble than that reality that you and I, too, might end up in sin. And it's so interesting that Paul would say, not only may you end up in sin, but you might end up in the exact same sin as this person you're guiding back. So be humble. Jesus told his followers something, too, that reminded me of this passage. In John, Jesus said this, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So again, Jesus is talking to his disciples, to his followers, to the people who have declared their allegiance to him. And he's saying, listen, people are going to know my love because of how you love each other. Your expression of love for each other will declare to the world that you belong to me. And Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying, listen, your grace, your ability to interact with each other and each other's sin is all dependent on your own experience of experiencing God's gentleness and humility with you. And so I think Gandhi wouldn't be able to say this if we lived out what Paul said. Gandhi, Gandhi would, wouldn't say, these people don't belong to Jesus. He would look at them and say, look at how they handle these really hard, difficult topics. Look at how they handle the sin in their brother's life. It's with gentleness and humility. They must belong to Jesus. The second rhythm is this, that grace leads us to sharing each other's burdens. So I grew up in a church that had what was called, a, 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 was called Missionettes, which was a Girl Scout, Girl Scout, a Christian Girl Scout version. It was amazing. We had uniforms. We did not sell cookies, which is a little disappointing. I think that was maybe let down to everybody else that I was a part of Missionettes. But uh, we also were trying to earn badges, and I didn't love doing it. We had to go once a week and wear the uniform and say the, like, motto and everything. It was amazing. So I started forging my badges, like just signing my parents' name so that I could like get badges and get done with it. I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. But our, our scripture verse that we quoted every week was Galatians 6.2. We would say, carry ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We'd say it over and over. I said it hundreds of times in my life. But what I, no one ever unpacked it for me. So to me, it sounded like, oh, this is like a really nice way to treat people. Oh, you want to be kind and nice? This is how you do it. You, like, care for each other, and when you have a cookie, you share it with your friend, and that's how it was unpacked for me. Maybe simply because they didn't explain it, but that's how I heard it. But Paul isn't offering us a nice way to get along with each other. He's offering us this way, he says, to fulfill the law of Christ, to do what Christ has asked us to do. And that statement, law of Christ, it comes from Jesus' interaction with uh, a person who asks him, teacher, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important law? And then Jesus sets up, here's what you need to know. Here's the most important thing you need to know. And, and Paul's saying, if we share each other's burdens, if we, if we deal with each other in this way, we're fulfilling what, what Jesus has asked. And this is what Jesus answered. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally, can you circle equally? I think that's so important. It's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. The law of Christ, 
all summed up here. Paul saying, share each other's burdens and you will fulfill what is said here to love God and to love others as ourselves. A few years ago, I was at a conference at a church and there was a woman speaking and she was a Somalian refugee and she worked at the airport. So when we probably have seen if we've been at the airport, an airport worker, and she was talking about the law of Christ. And she was saying, listen, if you love me like you love yourself, here's what you would want for, your, for me. And she began to unpack. If you love you, 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 me like you love yourself, what would you want for your children? And I began to think, like, everything in my life that I do for my family or do for myself or do for my children, it's because of love and how much I love them. And the call of Jesus is to want that equally for her, to want it the same. Because if I love her as I love myself, I want those same things for her, the stability, the education, those things I want for my children, I want for her children as well. And Paul goes on, he, he explains this, in a, he talks about this in a lot of his letters, but in 2 Corinthians, he talks about it as in uh, regards to our finances, to a really practical way. He says this, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly, and give according to what you have, not what you have done, don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. See, sharing our burdens, it should impact our time. It should impact our resources and how we use our money. Every year in student ministries, we take hundreds of kids to camp. We take uh, about 200 students and 50 adults to Canada for houseboats. And then we take about 200 middle schoolers to Paulsbo for Island Lake. So we take hundreds of teenagers. It's a little overwhelming, and I think I'm getting older every day. But it's amazing. But I want you to know that 15% of the students we take, we take because we can offer them financial support. Like they couldn't make it on their own. The camp, we try to keep it as low a cost, but they could not go to camp if it wasn't for your generosity. For someone in here saying, you know what, I want my kid to go to camp. And if I want my kid to go to camp, then I love this person like my neighbor, and I'd want their kids to go to camp. And so you, over and over, have made it possible for us to never have to say no, which is amazing that we don't ever have to turn a kid away. See, the call to fulfill Christ's law is outlandish. It's not charity. Let's, like Charity is easy. It costs you nothing. Sharing your life is about sharing the burden and shouldering the weight of those who are part of our family. We realize to relieve another burdens, another person's means that in some way I add to the burden of my life. It requires this deep commitment to each other. There used to be this show called Parenthood on, and I love it. Um, I, it was a little emotional for me. Like, I don't know an episode I didn't cry at, and if I cried, then I ate ice cream. It was like a very bad cycle. So, but I loved it. It was such a good, good show, and there's so many beautiful themes in there, and there's one about adoption, and, and you know, Mike has been talking about this grace that adopts us into a family, that gives us a father. But this scene and this in Parenthood that I want to show you, this clip, it actually shows us a different view of adoption. It shows us the power of gaining a family, 
of gaining a community. So why don't you check out this clip? And yeah, what I love about that clip is this reality that this child, while getting and gaining two parents, is gaining a community that's coming alongside them, saying, we will shape you, we will help parent and, and carry the burden of taking you through life and shaping you. And it's something so beautiful that, that we have this reality that we need each other. And in student ministries, we, we talk about this all the time, how much students need adults pouring into them. And, and for a long time, we used this ratio that we want one adult for every five students. And that's, I mean, I would be so excited if that was the reality we lived in, if we had one adult for every five students. But they're actually, it's interesting, they're doing all these studies about teenagers. And one of them that keeps coming up is that teenagers who grow up in churches, who graduate from high school and stay committed to the church and to following Jesus, what they're saying is they actually have five caring adults from church pouring into them. So five adults per one kid. And that's what we see is that all of us students, we need collectively people to surround us and say, I'm going to walk with you. In this life, you're going to experience something that I can offer you and this person can offer you. You're not alone. And students need that, but I want to tell you, we need it. We need it. And I actually think we have, there's a horrible myth in our culture that has been told maybe through too many movies and storylines that one person could meet all our needs. That's just not true. Not one person could fulfill all the things that we have, our needs in our life. Because we need each other. We need community. We need multiple people. And you know what? I haven't spoken to one person who doesn't crave that kind of community. I haven't ever spoken to one person who longs for deep, meaningful friendships. I've never met a person. Maybe if I've met one, it's because it started, and at first they're saying, like, I don't know if I want it because they've been wounded by community. But at the very heart of it, what they long for is deep connection with people. But we have to come to terms with our, our understanding of culture and our society. They do not push us towards this. They don't push us towards community. They push us away. And I was thinking about what are the things that push me personally away from experiencing what Paul talks about here, this kind of community. What are the things? And I came up with a couple roadblocks for my own life. And maybe, maybe these resonate with you, maybe not, but I think there's prob they're probably all connected. And so I want to share a couple of mine. My first one I thought of is busyness. Just the reality is that we live such a fast-paced life, it's almost impossible at the pace that we're living to build any kind of rhythm or routine or consistent movement that brings about connectedness. We're just too busy. And so we think we have relation, we want it, we crave it, so we set up these like once a month gatherings or things, but they just don't really give us space for connectedness. So I think busyness. But as I go a little deeper, Paul alludes that we would know each other's sin. And right away for me, my first gut reaction is shame. Like I'm just so embarrassed. I'm embarrassed about the realities of what's going on in my life. Do I really want people in my business that way? I mean, I think we'll all agree, yeah, we all struggle. We all admit that we have something going on. We're, in, we're on a journey. We're on a process. But please don't ask me to share the specifics with you. Please don't ask me to give you the details of my sin. But Paul's making it pretty clear here that we're going to know each other so well that you're going to know exactly what to call me on. 
you're going to know exactly how to guide me there. And so I can't let shame get in the way. I can't let shame. In fact, I have to lean towards vulnerability. But vulnerability is so difficult. It's so difficult to show up to the table just as you are, to be your truest self, to say, this is who I am. But the reality is, if I can't show up to a table and say, this is who I am, how are you going to know how to help me? How are you going to know how to share in my burdens? Because I'm, I'm just smiling. I'm not showing anybody. But we have to be willing to be vulnerable with each other. We can't keep answering the question, how are you doing? Fine, awesome, great, never been better, when deep inside we're, we're dying. We need to be more vulnerable with each other. And I've been, I feel like I've been struggling with this my whole entire life. In fact, uh, 22 years ago, I think I became a moment of like intense struggle for me. I was in college, um, and my world was literally turned upside down. I was attending Northwest right here in Kirkland, a Christian, a Christian university, and I loved it. And my story up until that point made it pretty easy for me to exist there. But my junior year, things changed, and I lived with a secret for years. Even with the people who were closest to me, I would maybe share my secret, but I would share it in a way that was like super light and candy-coated and didn't sound as painful as it was. See, I grew up in a family that was pretty normal, I thought, but when I was 20 years old, my mom left my dad, who was a pastor at that time, for another woman. And I had heard how my Christian community, including myself, had talked about those who were gay. And I knew in that moment that I could not tell a soul my secret. See, I believed that my mom's story would change how people saw me. And if I'm honest, even sharing that now, that was my fear coming in this morning. If I reveal this part of me, what will people say about me? And so I was robbed in that moment of having people come alongside me to care for me to help me grieve. I mean, literally my whole entire world had been turned upside down. I grew up in a home with a pastor to having this really messy story that I could not share with anybody. And I could not grieve the loss that I experienced with anybody. I, all by myself, I, I would stay in my dorm room. I would hide away from people. And I couldn't share my brain because I was just too afraid to be that vulnerable. I didn't allow anyone to carry my burden with me. Share it. Carry it for me. And I think it kept me from healing. It kept me from experiencing love and grace for years. Eventually, I would end up in therapy. I would end up in counseling. And I would begin to understand that I couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And so I, would, I began to trust people who had been so faithful in my life in multiple ways to begin kind of telling my secret to. But it would take years and it would get easier, and sometimes it would get harder, but, I mean, I have needed safe places to say, this is who I am, and this is my story. See, sharing our sin, pushing past shame, being vulnerable, it really kind of sounds messy. It sounds messy and scary, but what I believe is if we're going to live out Galatians 6, if we're going to embrace what Paul's talking about here, I have to come to terms with a reality that grace can be messy. Grace doesn't make our life clean, simple, and easy. It actually invites us right into the middle of the mess with others. 
to say to another person, listen, this is so messy and I don't understand it, but I am not leaving you here. I'm not leaving you. Just as Jesus looked at us and said, you're a mess, but I'm never going to leave you. We say that to each other. We offer that to each other. I mean, we could, it's so easy to run from conflict. It's so easy to run from like, man, that's really heavy and that's going to probably ruin my day and what I had planned. That's messy. But I'm committed to not leaving. Grace is inviting us to something so much more better, so much more beautiful than what we're living. It's inviting us to experience grace and hope and peace and the fulfillment of staying right there with another person, right in the middle of the mess, to having hard conversations, to looking someone in the eye and say, I love you so much, but where you are at is not the right place to looking at another person and saying, listen, that pain is just too much to bear and we are not going to let you suffer alone. Whether it's sitting with you, being with you, but I will not leave you. We say over like our family, no one suffers alone. We sit with them, we, 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 we walk alongside, we take what we can, we offer grace to each other. Because while it's messy, it's beautiful. And the more I understand grace, the grace that Paul writes about throughout the book of Galatians, the more I see and know how much I need others. Because here's what I believe, and this is, this is really, really important, that I understand my understanding of God's grace and how he sees me is so deeply tied to the grace that you share to me. That in fact, I have a clear understanding of how God sees me because of the way you have seen me. And that means the opposite is true. That as I struggle to understand, does grace really apply to me? Does God really love and accept me? That maybe that's because I felt that message from others. And if I'm willing to, to go there to admit that my understanding of God is so deeply tied to how we treat each other, then I understand how important it is to live in the rhythms of grace. How important it is. So one last thought. Over like, we are a family that has received grace, so we give grace. Can we make a commitment together to be a family that pursues the type of community that Paul's talking about? The type of community that knows each other so well, that sits with each other, who has hard conversations with each other, who cares for each other, who says, we will carry this burden with you. I think, I imagine what Overlake would look like if we were that community. I imagine what kind of family we would be. And I can't, I think it would be beautiful. I do think the world would look at us and say, that's Jesus. And I want to be a part of that. So I want to close. I want to pray Paul's final prayer for the church of Galatia over us. So will you join me in prayer? From Galatians 6.16, may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle, the principle of grace. They are a new people of God. Jesus, would you give us a fullness of who you are, of your grace for us, and Jesus, would you give us courage to push past our shame and our fear of vulnerability to find the connectedness 
that, that knowing we are a part of family gives us. Would you help us to know each other, to care for each other? God, to find the deepness that comes when we live out what Paul writes about, about loving and gently and guiding people and caring for each other and sharing burdens. God, would you give us an understanding of that? Would you help us live it out so that we might experience your grace? In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.